Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Friday the 27th of November. Dr. Gary Groman looks at data that has been released on the Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna and AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines. There have been claims of up to 94.5% efficacy and some controversy with the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. But what does all this mean? And how should we become more nuanced in knowing which vaccine is best for which particular group of people? What other questions remain that must be answered? As usual, Dr. Grohman helps us to critically understand these issues. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Hey, Dr. Grohman, can you tell us about yourself? Yes, I've, I've worked at the TGA for uh, some 17 years in the Department of Health here in Australia, and then I followed that up with working uh, with WHO, and all that work was done on vaccines, and now I'm a private consultant. Now, Gary, uh, many podcasts ago, you did warn us that in late November, December, we will have a flurry of activity as various data becomes published or available for us to look at. And that's what we're going to do today is look at some of these. First cap of the rank are the Pfizer Moderna vaccines. Uh, they seem to be coming pretty thick and fast in terms of efficacy and in terms of being able to be uh, readied and distributed to the community. How do you see these vaccines going? Well, just to go back a step, we do have a flurry of activity. We are going to have some 19 vaccines uh, in 2021, releasing data. And as you say, Moderna and Pfizer are the first cab off the rank. And so um, it, the data will be coming thick and fast as it is. So if we look at the messenger RNA vaccines, if we start, say, with Moderna, so, the MR, so this particular vaccine is uh, probably going to come to market in about January. Uh, and uh, that will be released in the US. They're, most of that vaccine will begin to go to the US first. Uh, it's got excellent data. Uh, the vaccine clearly protects in monkeys from coronavirus. And as you know, there's over 90% of efficacy so far uh, in humans. In fact, they claim 94.5%. As we mentioned last time we spoke, um, people get efficacy and effectiveness mixed up. And although it's reported in the newspapers and indeed by drug companies as effectiveness, it's actually efficacy uh, which is quite different and done in controlled populations, whereas effectiveness in a nutshell is done in the real world uh, with um, uh, no exclusions uh, and, uh, to everyone. So uh, the data is quite different. So I would expect a 94.5% uh, 
uh, efficacy to probably drop to around about 80% effectiveness, but time, time will tell when the phase four studies uh, continue. So that's been very, very good news uh, with uh, Moderna. And um, there's no severe side effects either, which is also very good news. And, the most, and there's also no severe disease. It's mild disease in the vaccinees uh, who were protected compared to more serious disease in the placebo group. So uh, that vaccine is looking particularly good and um, it will be released uh, in the United States shortly. And also Japan and Canada and Qatar also have uh, various contracts in place. The second vaccine that we're very excited about, of course, is the Pfizer and the BioNTech combination vaccine, uh, or the two companies that make the vaccine. Now they're claiming over 90% uh, effectiveness. Again, it's really efficacy. Um, they um, um, have done a little more detail in terms of their uh, side effect work, looking at safety. They started off, as you know, with two strains, uh, and they selected the one with the least amount of side effects. And their study has been completed now in 30,000 volunteers in the US, Argentina, Brazil, and Germany. And they've reported um, very good um, uh, antibody and T-cell response on the first dose and also the second. Uh, so that also looks very, very promising. Uh, and they've also done um, a, a um, side study uh, looking at children uh, down to the age of 12. So uh, the data for that is yet to be released, but again, there are no serious side effects, which is really encouraging. So 100 million doses will be made for the US, 120 million for Japan. The EU is getting 200 million and they expect to make 1.3 billion by the end of 2021 with this particular vaccine. So that's also very, very good news. I've got you, I've quite a few questions about that. Just confirming that the Pfizer vaccine is also an mRNA. Yes, sorry, it is an mRNA and both of them will have uh, issues with um, storage and distribution in the sense they have to be frozen uh, and they need to be frozen minus 70 to 80 degrees and then transported around about the same. And I believe they've overcome this um, apparent issue by um, making some rather marvellous eskies which contain dry ice so it can be uh, distributed to the various immunisation centres. But there are still some difficulties because once it's thawed it needs to be diluted and then uh, drawn up in syringes kept at four degrees and used as soon as possible and probably on the same day. So there's going to have to be firm appointments or vaccination days or something for people to receive the vaccine. And initially this might be best done in a large institution like mm. a hospital rather than a GP's office. It does sound as if the protocol required is a little bit more stringent and we have to ensure that the cold chain is not broken. Yes, yes, that's right. We've got to be very, very careful because RNA is very sensitive to the enzyme RNAs, which is ubiquitous, mm. and it's a very fragile molecule anyway. Uh, so it needs to be frozen for transport until mm. you... Yeah. Now, in the previous interviews, Gary, you did pose the question uh, whether some vaccines actually protect against symptoms or whether they're actually protecting against infections and transmissions. Do you have any uh, idea about these vaccines, the MRA vaccines? Are they 
good at preventing symptoms or do other effective in preventing transmissions? Well, we haven't unveiled the, they haven't unveiled the whole data set yet, so we can't answer the question conclusively. But I think we can say that it will probably prevent severe disease, prevent hospitalizations and deaths. And mm -hmm. I think that's a terrific clinical endpoint to achieve. Whether it stops somebody from spreading the disease from person to person, even though they've got the vaccine, is still a question mark. Um, one presumes a virus load will be low, lower, but if a person has mild or asymptomatic infection, in theory, they can still spread the disease uh, despite having the vaccine. So all our hygiene and social distancing and so on will need to remain in place until we can answer all those questions uh, accurately. And that will take a little more time in phase four studies mm. uh, and, and other more boutique studies that people might decide to do. But the critical endpoints of hospitalisation and severity will probably be met uh, to a high degree. By that, I mean 80 to 90% of the time. Now, help me understand this, Gary. Is the primary endpoint or outcome uh, in the study looking at reducing infections and transmissions, or is it hospitalisations and severity of disease? So I guess what I'm asking is, it almost sounds as if we are really achieving very well the secondary outcome or endpoint, but possibly we still don't know about the primary endpoint of preventing transmissions. That's my limited understanding. Am no, I right? No, that's uh, correct, David. We can't really answer that question until later about passing it from person to person. Okay. Now, normally, if somebody gets any vaccine, they can still get the uh, still get the infection, whatever it is, asymptomatically and still pass it on. It doesn't mean what we call sterilising immunity. Um, I think that might be possible, but uh, we'll just have to see. There's something like smallpox is sterilising immunity. People become immune, they don't get the virus and they don't pass it on. Right. And, uh, but for many other vaccines, that's not the case. They, uh, it, it can stop severe infection and disease, but you might still feel a little bit unwell, have mild symptoms. Yeah. But it won't stop the severe form of the disease again, depending on what the organism yeah. is. So uh, the same happens with influenza. It may well stop a number of people, um, some 94%, in fact, um, it, it meets the end point in terms of severe disease and hospitalisation, but it doesn't stop you from getting the flu. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so if you get an asymptomatic infection, you can still pass it on. So we don't know the answer to that yet accurately, but we will know. I hope in a few months' time. And we'll take time to complete phase four studies. Right. The other endpoints are to do with safety. So, so far, it seems that there are no severe adverse reactions. But again, uh, we'll need to wait for the phase four study because in vaccinating 30,000 people gives you good efficacy and, and interesting data on, on safety. Mm -hmm. uh, um, that only gives us a one in 10,000 chance of seeing a particular uh, safety effect. Uh, and that's good. But if you vaccinate in the field and you have 300,000 people that you're studying, mm -hmm. uh, then that symptom or uh, issue of safety, uh, it gives us um, one in 30,000 uh, chance. So it, it depends how you work the statistics uh, and the numbers. But that's what you look for. And people would be very comfortable if it was a one in 10,000 or one in 30,000 chance. Um, we accept, accept, rather, for example, um, 
that if we go to a restaurant, there's a one in 10,000 chance that we might get food poisoning. Mm. We need to accept that kind of risk assessment. Uh, with a brand new vaccine on a brand new platform going into healthy people that we've never seen before, never used before, we'd like a little more comfort. I think one in 30,000 would be preferable. Mm. I imagine most people out there are listening and most people in the public would like that kind of safety factor built into the study, which it is. Uh, but we won't have the full answer until about uh, when all the phase four studies come through. And I'm also very uh, delighted to hear that the Pfizer group, uh, including, if you like, uh, the more at-risk groups and the young people, because that's more real life. Yes, and uh, that's really important. Uh, uh, that's really, really important because we know it is spread in uh, high schools, uh, universities. So to be able to immunise uh, them uh, would be a great boon. And I believe the greatest spread, according to, MD, according to epidemiologists, is between the 20 and 39-year-olds. So it'd be quite important uh, to vaccinate them as well because they socialise a lot more and so on. Uh, but to vaccinate down to 12 would mean you could keep schools open and so on. Mm. And it doesn't really affect children under 12 because of immune tolerance. Even though they can get the virus, they don't have as many ACE2 receptors. Uh, and so they get either very mild or asymptomatic disease or it doesn't affect them at all because of immune tolerance and other uh, interventions from the immune system. Two more comments about the mRNA. I remember very early in the piece, Gary, that uh, the thought was that it's possible that the mRNA uh, vaccines being a novel platform uh, may not be highly effective in creating a strong immunogenic response. So this 94.5, even though its efficacy, must sound very exciting for people like you who deal with vaccines. Look, it is very exciting because on the first dose, there's a mild response, but on the second dose, it's a lot greater. And that in itself isn't surprising. We see this with various antigens. Uh, in this case, we're dealing with RNA that produces an antigen by your own cells. Um, so um, on the first dose with, say, a protein vaccine, you get a mild response, but on the second dose, it's much greater. And that's why you tend to give it two to four weeks apart. Mm. And you get a much greater dose, a much greater response, I mean, on the second dose. And if you gave a third dose, it would be even greater. And that's why for a lot of vaccines, we require boosters every so often, which is mm. the the third dose. But the prime boost of first and second dose is uh, quite important, uh, particularly for novel vaccines in a virgin population. And we're on track to see this particular vaccine in Australia around what time of next year? Yes, I believe so. I believe it will be available in March and probably being distributed uh, to those who wish to receive it. And as I understand, it will be first responders and frontline workers who, who will receive it first. Uh, there is now a policy by the federal government that's come out online. Uh, and then after that, there will be those at risk uh, and then the public and so on. And that document is available online now. Now, let's move on to the other vaccine that has released some data to some controversy. Uh, that's the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Maybe, Gary, uh, you might just tell our listeners about what some of the issues are that has arisen from the release of the data from this particular vaccine? Well, uh, again, there's, there's good news. This um, Oxford vaccine, as we call it, this is based on, a, again, an adenovirus vector, 
in this case, a non-replicating chimpanzee adenovirus. And, and it's revealed that there was some 90% efficacy, depending on the dosage. That was their first report. They um, then did a number of global trials, I mean, quite a lot of global trials, and they did find in some patients had a form of inflammation, which we know as transverse myelitis, uh, and in some places the trials were in fact stopped. We still don't know um, uh, if the volunteers received uh, placebo or the vaccine, and people are waiting uh, for that data. And as I mentioned before, it's really important that companies are totally transparent um, about all the data uh, that they're looking at. So they, uh, they did their study in people aged between 18 and 55, mainly, but also there's uh, a number of people uh, aged between 56 and 69, and then a, another number that was 70 or older. But they didn't go any lower than that, uh, any lower than 18. So they unveiled the first 131 cases of COVID-19 in trials in Brazil and the United Kingdom. And all these volunteers got two doses, but some only had a half strength for the first dose. And it was good to see that experiment because um, if they looked at the half strength followed by full strength as a prime boost, they got over 90% efficacy. And if they had two standard doses of full strength, that dropped to 62% efficacy. Um, uh, so that's, uh, that's been a very good piece of information that um, a smaller dose followed by a larger dose promotes a stronger immune response. Now, I guess we've known this for a long time with other uh, uh, data and vaccines, uh, particularly in animal work, that you always give a smaller dose for the primary response and then a larger dose for the boost. Um, and that gives the best response from the immune system. So nobody's really surprised to read that, but it's very, very good that uh, they've got the data comparing the two. Um, and, and obviously they'll go for the scenario of half strength followed by full strength. I've read that it's actually one of those wonderful serendipitous events where the half dose was given in error because of some kind of um, manufacturing uh, endosing issue. But it was really good to be able to compare the two different dosings. Um, but the other thing that I also read, uh, Gary, was that the high efficacy rate of 90% was also mainly seen in the young healthy age groups. Yes. So because most of the data is in healthy 18 to 55-year-olds, we can't extrapolate into other age groups because the numbers are smaller. So one needs to be careful. But in the 18 to 55, we can say it's well over 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very, very encouraging. We can't say anything about the under 18s. And, it, you know, the, the data set's really too small to comment at the moment on what the efficacy is like in people over the age of 65. We, they just need to unveil more of the data so we can be confident in that. But, you know, the vaccine is going to be fine for sure for healthy 18 to 55-year-olds. That does ask the question, uh, because you did say earlier that the most at-risk age group, because they are engaging in more risky behaviour, are that particular age group. So even though we haven't yet seen data for the young and the elderly and the sick, I just wonder whether different vaccines may serve different purposes. Like, for example, 
this one being given to young healthy people and and then in that way protecting the older people does that kind of make sense yes it does it's always horses for courses and i think if we find uh, a vaccine that's efficacious for a particular age group whether it's the older the middle or the younger Mm -hmm. then that should definitely be used and promoted. And th those kinds of decisions are made by expert committees, like the target government policy. And uh, again, we haven't had a lot of time really to assess it, given the warp speed of uh, vaccine production. Um, but um, that will hopefully come out and uh, in, in time as to which vaccine is the best one for which age group. I look forward to more discussions with you as the data comes out, so we begin to understand as doctors and GPs um, where each particular vaccine might sit in which population. Uh, I think it's becoming quite important for us to differentiate. Yes, I, I, it's a really important question that needs to be answered. And we also need to answer the question, if somebody is vaccinated, can they still carry the virus and pass it on? Right. And uh, this needs to be done on that. And we also still... Um, even though I know we're excited about efficacy, we need to keep safety in mind and, and really have a very careful look at rare adverse events as time goes on. Okay. Uh, and if a particular vaccine platform uh, does produce too many adverse events, particularly transverse myelitis or something like that, uh, then that vaccine should probably be queried for its use or only used in particular age groups. The other thing we don't know is that how these vaccines will go in people that have got other comorbidities, whether they're cancer patients or um, they have other issues, whatever it might be, other yeah. immunological issues, that question can't be answered because there's no specific trial for that. I'm not even sure about the data for pregnant women. Uh, so I think we need to tread carefully with special groups. We haven't done any work on indigenous populations or first nation populations around the world. There's still a lot of questions to go, uh, but nevertheless, we know for a healthy group of 18 to 55, yes, there will be a vaccine and we will be able to distribute it uh, in spades uh, and probably all around the world to meet all the needs. Yeah. Final questions, Gary. Uh, have we invested too much in one vaccine in Australia, meaning we've put a lot of billions into producing one vaccine? Do you think we have enough uh, time and money to start the manufacture of another platform? Oh, look, I believe so. I think the government very wisely has signed a number of contracts with different providers, uh, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, uh, Novartis, um, uh, have, have all been important, uh, and probably others. Uh, there's also the UQ CSL vaccine uh, coming on, uh, which is going through its trials. So. This is very wise to have multiple partners in industry for government because it's possible that there'll be a manufacturing problem or a supply problem of some sort, or there might be an adverse reaction that we're not too happy with that might arise in the future once it goes into a number of people. Mm. So having those options is quite sensible. And as far as I know, the government's got at least four. And, uh, and also they've made or given CSL uh, quite a deal of money uh, to, be, to really be a vaccine hub and make a number of vaccines on a number of platforms. So that too is a very big bonus for the whole of Australia and the region. That sounds really exciting. Gary, uh, before we go, do you have any final messages for our listeners? I think as I've alluded to, until the question is answered about whether 
taking a vaccine will basically give you sterilizing immunity or not, it's still very important, as I think I mentioned before, to make sure that we keep up all the hygiene practices that we're doing now, uh, follow government advice and so on in the community. But the hygiene practices are still extremely important, um, even though we may well be able to uh, produce and distribute a successful vaccine. And we have to continuously educate our population in terms of hygiene. And the, and the other thing that's come through is, of course, as far as it's excreted in fecal material, and it's important that our hygiene and cleanliness in toilet areas and bathrooms is, is kept up. And people need not to get too complacent when it comes to hygiene and social distancing and washing and so on is very, very important um, at all levels, whether it's the office or the home or in the shopping centres or whatever it might be. It's really, really important to keep that message very, very strong in my view. I'm so glad to keep repeating that every time I talk to you, especially now, Gary, I'm very concerned. Uh, everybody is behaving as if the virus has somehow mag magically vanished. I I'm not seeing many people wearing masks these days. And of course, with the hot weather, uh, we've already seen parties of more than 100 people busted. And, and I'm, I'm just worried that in this summer, uh, we will be doing things that might put us through to another surge in winter. And that's my concern. Do you think that's valid? Uh, I, absolutely valid. You, you don't, don't assume that um, uh, the virus will only come around in a particular season. I mean, for example, influenza is a virus that's here all year round. It's just that we see more of it in winter for various reasons. Coronavirus will be with us all year round in every season. And it's entirely dependent on the level of asymptomatic and symptomatic carriage and then spread from person to person, either directly or, or from surfaces or fomites. Um, then that, you know, that's really important to understand. And it's important to understand that it, it's an enteric virus as well as a respiratory virus. And it can be spread uh, quite easily by both routes. So hand washing is absolutely critical, thorough hand washing and cleanliness. And we social distancing as well. And we, we just have to keep up the awareness. Complacency is, you know, it could really be the death of us in a way. We've got to be careful, otherwise there'll be another pocket or another wave, so to speak. It's unlikely, I think, there will be another wave. But there could well be pockets, whether it's restaurants or large outdoor gatherings or, or a wedding or whatever it might be. We still have to be incredibly careful and keep educating the community from primary school onwards that... Uh, hygiene is absolutely critical in controlling infection, and in particular, COVID, but also every other infectious disease. And the evidence for that is, as we've talked about before, the rates of other infectious diseases like pertussis and norovirus, influenza, have plummeted. And um, that's also good news because it keeps daycare centres open, it keeps people at work and so on. And um, that, in combination with vaccines, really does keep infectious diseases under control. Gary, it's always such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm sure I'll be speaking with you again not long from now, because as you said, uh, there's going to be so much exciting things coming out. So well, be, be prepared to get another call from me. Yes, uh, that would be great. And um, there'll be at least another 10 vaccines probably the next time we speak that we can report on and, and discuss and see what the data looks like. Thank you so much once again, Gary, for helping us make sense of what's coming up. Okay, you're welcome and thank you. Have a great day.
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points. And it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section, and click on self-claim.